You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. What you believe matters. There is nothing more consequential in your life than what you believe. There's nothing more decisive in your life than what you believe. The greatest predictor of your actions and your decisions and your behavior and even your future is your beliefs. And this isn't Christian propaganda. This is actually the way that social scientists would describe our behavior in the world and especially how we would go about changing our behavior in the world. Right, so Dr. Linda Hinman says this, every decision starts with a belief. That is, we base our decisions on what we know to be true, what we believe. But then she says, sometimes we believe something that isn't true. And so when we fail to examine our beliefs and bring them to a conscious level, we run the risk that we will continue to base decisions on false or inaccurate inputs. And so what should we do? She asked this question, what can you do to disrupt your belief systems? She's saying, if you want to change your behavior, you have to disrupt what you believe. That's not just social science. It's actually true in the world of business as well. Tim Reddick, author and leadership coach, says this, your belief system is the invisible force behind your behavior. And so he advises us to become aware of how your beliefs affect your behavior and consciously shape how your belief system develops. And then your behavior and your habits will follow. Or we could just remember that famous Henry Ford quote where he says, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Right? What you believe matters because it shapes your life, your whole life. Right, so Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is, your beliefs shape your words, but it also shapes your actions. Jesus also says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Right, the heart in Scripture is the place of belief that leads us into our actions and to our words, which makes that verse in Jeremiah 17 make a little bit more sense. You know that verse, Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, it says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see that God searches our hearts and our minds, and in doing so, he's able to give us accurately what we deserve based on our actions, our ways, and our deeds. How is it possible? It's because our beliefs, our heart, shape our action. And we know that in culture, right? I mean, how often in culture are we told to just follow our heart, right? It's your core belief, It's your core feelings about something. It influences the way you act. Although, follow your heart if we consider what Jeremiah 17 tells us is horrible advice because your heart is desperately, desperately sick. 
Another way we could think about that sickness is that our hearts are just prone to believe lies. And the result of bad beliefs is bad behavior. Right, I say all of that as a way of introduction to the series that we're starting today in the book of Titus. Our series is going to be called Truth and Godliness. Truth and Godliness. These are the twin emphases of this little letter written by the apostle Paul to his friend, his, his apprentice, his student, Titus. And Titus is out helping establish churches on the island of Crete. And so over and over again in this letter, Paul is going to make it clear to Titus that there is an unbreakable connection between belief and behavior, between truth and godliness. He tells him to put leaders in place in these churches, put leaders in place that understand the connection between truth and godliness and who live that out in their lives. He gives him instructions, in fact, to insist on these things. And he says, when you're talking about the connection between truth and godliness, let no one disregard you when you preach these things. You see, in the, in the churches on the island of Crete, false teachers had begun to creep in and they had begun to attack both of those things. On the one hand, they had begun teaching a false gospel. They had begun to emphasize ritual purity. That is sort of the Jewish customs that you had to do all of these things in order to be acceptable unto God. Which of course, when you do that, you're making the death of Christ of no effect. If Jesus alone is not enough, then Jesus just isn't enough. And they began to teach that there was more to the gospel than simply repent and believe in Jesus. But at the same time, they were living lives that were utterly unacceptable to the life of a Christian. Here's what Paul says about them in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. He's talking about the false teachers and he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. They have abandoned both truth and godliness, which makes a lot of sense because those two things, your beliefs and your actions are connected together. If you abandon truth, you will abandon godliness as well. And so in this letter over and over again, we're gonna see Paul's primary concern in this letter to Titus is to present truth that leads to godliness. He says that he hopes that these people would begin to love what is good, begin to teach what is good, begin to do what is good. And that's my hope for us as well. As we read this letter, as we study this letter over the next several weeks, that we would begin to grow, we begin to walk in truth and godliness. And so this week, we just wanna look at the first opening few verses of Titus, which lays out that objective, but it also is gonna give us the, the fuel, the power to live lives of truth and godliness. In these first four verses of, of the book of Titus, we're gonna be called to live lives of truth and godliness that are rooted in hope. And so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Titus. It's a very small book towards the end of your Bible. I'll give you a hint. All the books of the Bible that start with the letter T are lumped together. So if you find 1st or 2nd Thessalonians or 1st or 2nd Timothy, just keep going. Titus is the last one and you'll find it there. Um, we're 
Titus is the, is the final one. They actually, incidentally, are in alphabetical order too. So Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. There's all sorts of ways to remember these things. Okay, if you picked up one of the Bibles, though, on your way in, you'll find it on page, I think it's um, actually on 10,000 or 1,099 is the page that we're looking for. We want to read the first four verses. And if you snagged one of these Bibles, and I see that several of you did, um, not only is that the page we're looking at, but if you don't have a Bible of your own, please just take one of those. And if you need one because there's not any over there anymore, come let me know. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We want to get that in, in your hands. And if you don't regularly read the Bible, we would actually encourage you. We have these reading plans out in the lobby. We call them discipleship reading plans. They're a super easy way just to get into the Bible every day. And if you're unfamiliar with scripture, I would advise plan one, which just gives a general overview of all of the story of scripture. And if you want someone to read along with you, we'd love to help make that connection for you to have someone to talk with as you read. Okay, Titus chapter one and the first four verses, it says this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That is one very long sentence. And that one sentence, that one very long sentence tells us some of the things we've already established, right? Paul is the writer, Titus is the recipient, but it also lays out the reason, the purpose behind this letter, the purpose really of Paul's ministry as a whole. He says, I'm an apostle for this reason, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with Godliness. Paul is all about calling people to God that they might believe the truth and then they might live in godliness. And that perhaps seems overwhelming that we would believe all the right things and that we would live in all the right ways. It's an overwhelming ask for us. And so he roots that in our hope. He encourages, he encourages us with the hope of eternal life that we might live lives of truth and godliness rooted in hope. So Paul says that he's an apostle. That is, he's sent out by God for the sake of our faith and our knowledge of the truth, that we might believe what is truth, that our faith might, might grow. Right, so 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says this, Paul's writing here too, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. How do we grow in faith? Right, that's, we know that we should grow in faith, but how do we grow in faith? Right, well, for starters we would examine the things that we believe and see if they're really true or not. Take the things that you believe and hold them up to the light of scripture and see if they're actually true. 
We're told in the book of Acts that the the Bereans were noble. They were celebrated as noble because they received preaching with gladness. They loved hearing preaching, but then they would go home and they would examine the scriptures to see if the things that the preacher said were actually true. 2 Corinthians 10.5 encourages us to take every thought captive and to make it obedient to Christ. Here's what I want you to know. You're believing things that are lies. You are believing things that are not true. So am I. We are believing lies. And the work that we have to do is we have to examine our beliefs, hold them up to the light of scripture that we might discern falsehood and then dismiss it. That we could cling to the truth. Let me give you an example. Some of you, some of you believe that you can sin all you want because God will forgive you as if you've backed God into some sort of corner of his mercy. You know the thing that you're about to do is sin. You see it, you know it is. And yet, even though you see it, you just simply do not care because you're convinced that God has to forgive you. He's obligated to forgive you. But friend, that is a lie. That's, and when I hold that up, here's how I know it's a lie. When I hold it up to scripture, here's what I begin to see. I see Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 and 27 where I find that if I go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. When I take the thing that I believe and I hold it up to scripture, I I find in Romans chapter six, verses one and two, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Because how can those who have died to sin still live in it? If you wanna grow in your faith, if I want to grow in my faith, the thing that I have to do is I have to take what I believe and hold it up to scripture and say, I only want to believe what's true. So I hold it up to scripture and I examine it to find out if it's true. And if it's not true, but I really like it. And if it's not true, but I don't like what the Bible says, I choose to believe that what God says is best, even when I don't like it. If I want to grow in faith, I must always choose the word of God. And, and, and trust me, right? I gave one example, but there are countless other examples in our lives, right? You are definitely believing lies. You're believing lies about God's love for you. You're believing lies about the freedom that you have in Christ. You're believing lies about the power that you have in the spirit of God. You're believing lies about the high calling of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and so many more things. And the result is that we are living lives that are not godly because they're not based on truth. But notice this, because I think this is amazing. It's not all about faith. Paul is writing on behalf of our knowledge of the truth. And you may be thinking, well, those two sound like the same thing, right? It's not the same thing, same thing. But that's because we're reading this in the 21st century, and this was written in the first century, and there's this incredible thing that happened in the middle called the Enlightenment, and it completely changed what the word knowledge means. 
So let me just help you. On one level, it does mean a little bit that we would you know, know more things, intellectually know more things that are true, that we would be encouraged to do things like read the Bible, right? Study scripture, to, to be in church, to, to go to our bridge groups, to sit with other Christians, that we might discern what is true. All of that is there, but there is so much more. The word knowledge in the Bible points us to relationship. Knowledge in scripture is about relationship. To have, to have knowledge of the truth is to live in relationship with the truth, to be intimate with the truth. All right, y- y- y'all probably heard me say this before, but Genesis chapter four, verse one, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. That is not talking about him knowing things about her. They were intimate with one another. To know in scripture is to be in intimate relationship with. So how do we get into relationship with the truth? First Timothy chapter two, verses three and four says this. It says, this is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is your salvation, your relationship with the truth. So how do you have a relationship with truth? Well, here's what we need to do. We need to understand Jesus's words in John 14, where he says this, he says, I am the way and the truth. So Jesus is truth personified. He's truth in flesh and blood. And his desire is that you would be saved by him, but then that you would live in relationship with him, that you would have knowledge of the truth. Jesus didn't just come so that he could save you and then get out of your way to let you do whatever you wanted. He came that he might save you and bring you to God, that you could have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And then, and then he says this in, in John chapter eight, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That is, you will follow me. You'll live in relationship with me. And then he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When you live in relationship with God, when you live in relationship with Jesus, it will set you free. Free from your your bondage to sin. Free from the lives that you have lived previously. Free from a heart that is full of lies. Now that we have this freedom, we can live lives of godliness. In fact, that's what Galatians says. Paul, again, writing in the book of Galatians says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. We are free, but our freedom is to be used in service of one another. We are free now to love God with every part of our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're free to do that because all of those lies that have convinced us that we don't need God, all of those lies that have convinced us that we don't need our neighbors, all of those lies, we've been set free from them. So now I can sacrificially love my neighbor, sacrificially serve my neighbor. 
So the, the pastor, Tim Chester, when commenting on this passage says, Paul does not simply want Christians who believe the right things. His goal was people whose faith, whose faith bore fruit in godly living. His goal was not converts, but disciples. Real relationship with the truth will result in right living, always. In fact, the, the only road to righteousness is through relationship with truth. The only road to righteousness is through a relationship with Jesus. That's why one of our core values here at College Creek Church is seeking Christ, learning to be like him. Right? Because our point is this, that the only way that we're gonna learn to be like Jesus is if we would seek after a relationship with him. And so in our very founding documents, here's, here's what we say in our founding documents. We say, we are called to personal holiness. We are called to gain it through relationship with Christ. John 15 lays out a vision of our righteousness being in direct result of our relationship with Christ. Thus, we do not seek righteousness. Rather, we seek Christ. And we believe that as we seek him, we will learn to live like him. Countless, friends, countless examples from scripture and history show us this, that seeking holiness alone does not lead to Christ, but seeking Christ will always lead to holiness. Truth results in godliness. Right belief leads to right behavior. I mean, I know that from from my own life, when I begin to examine areas of sin in my life, if I will do the work, like actually not run away from it, but actually do the work, what I will always find is that the real problem is something deeper, some belief that I have that is wrong. And if I really believed in Jesus, if I really believed that he was enough, I wouldn't think that I needed this other thing. If I really believed that Jesus was enough, I wouldn't go looking for satisfaction in all of the passing pleasures of this world, right? If I really believed in the acceptance of Christ and that's all I needed, if I actually believed it, I wouldn't yearn so much for acceptance from other people. And I wouldn't choose to, to sin in order to get their acceptance, if I really believed that Jesus had forgiven me, I wouldn't make excuses all of the time for my sin. Right? As I press in to my relationship with God, I begin to know his love more. And his love then sets me free from desperately seeking love from other people. But I, I always think about that, that verse in Hebrews chapter 11, where he's talking about, he's talking about Moses He's talking about faith and godliness in the life of Moses. I love this verse. Just listen to this. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Do you see that his faith resulted in godliness because he believed rightly that it is far better to be part of the people of God even when you're suffering 
then all of the sin, all of the pleasure that his position would afford him in Egypt. He rightly believed that in Christ, there is far more treasure than there is in Egypt. There is far more glory in Christ than there is in America. There's far more to be found in relationship with the truth than anything that this world can afford you. But that's hard. That's hard to to believe. It's even harder to, to live, right? Because everyone else is telling you, the world is telling you, our culture is filling our head full of lies about how great it is to have all the things and to do all the things, and to be loved by all the people, and to receive all the applause, and all the glory, the fleeting pleasures of sin is alluring, to be sure. And to be mistreated with the people of God doesn't seem that great. Doesn't seem that great at all. And yet, when you have a relationship with the truth, when you begin to believe the truth, then godliness, as confusing as it is, begins to take over. And you begin to do things that are, according to scripture, foolish. You begin to do foolish things because it is far better, far better than all the things that this world could afford. Again, Tim Chester says, living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge when we live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways. But truth leads to godliness. In fact, if you aren't living a life of godliness, there's, there's a reason. There's a reason, in fact, to, to question how firmly you believe the truth. So commentator Edmund Hybert says it this way, a profession of the truth which allows an individual to live in ungodliness is a spurious profession. It's a spurious profession. If if your profession of the truth allows you to do whatever you want, I don't think you really believe the truth. Consider again Paul's own condemnation of the false teachers in Crete, right? They profess to know God. Just because you say you know God does not mean that you know God. They profess to know God, but then they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Belief in the truth leads to godliness, and godliness then points back to a real and authentic belief in the truth. Right? But we've said, as we've said already, right, that's hard. This is hard to do, to live this way. It's not easy. And that's why Paul's going to call us to a life of truth and godliness that is rooted in hope. Specifically, it's rooted in the hope of eternity. That's the next clause of our verse there. How is it possible to live up to such a high calling? It's only because we can look ahead and see an eternal hope in front of us. Right? That's what, that's what Moses did. Right? It says, that last line in Hebrews 11, it says that he was looking to the reward. He was looking forward with hope of eternity. So Paul points us forward to our reward as well, our sure hope of eternal life. Now, just a, a word on hope here. When we read hope, really any place in scripture, we need to read it as a settled 
confidence. That's what it means. We hope it. We have a settled confidence. It's not something that we are wishing will happen. It's something that we are expecting to happen. Why are we expecting this to happen? Because it has been guaranteed by God. It has been doubly guaranteed by God. Paul says on the first place, it was guaranteed by his word, his promise, right? God promised it and God does not lie. And he didn't just promise it recently. God promised it before the ages began. It was the eternal plan of God to give his people eternal life with him. From eternity past, he promised and he secured our eternal future. Paul is pointing out the trustworthiness of God. And he says, it, it matters in the specific context of Crete because on, on the one hand, right, he's been talking about how important it is to trust things that are true. So he's contrasting the honesty of God with, on the one hand, the liars that are all around them in Crete. We're actually told in verse 12, this is a, a Cretan philosopher. This isn't even Paul. He's quoting a Cretan philosopher named Epimenides. And he says this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, Epimenides, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Sounds a lot like our own culture too. We're also told in scripture that Satan is, the, is not only a liar, but the father of lies. And so talking of Satan, talking of culture, in the midst of that, he presents God who never lies. Here's God who never lies and God has promised it. He has guaranteed your future hope by his word, by his promise that you will have eternal life with him if you are in Christ. But not just his word. He guaranteed it by his actions too. God has already started making moves. When I was a teenager, I would fall asleep on the couch in our living room and my mother would say to me in the evening, get up and go to bed. And I would say, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. I had guaranteed it by my word, but I never did it. The only way she knew I would do it is if I began to make moves towards doing it. So she would say, get up, and I would say, I'm doing it. And she would say, you're not moving. Move, right? God has begun to make moves. He's acting on his promises already in the coming of Christ. He's working out this promise through the preaching of the word, even the preaching that the people in Crete had already heard through Paul. And he's working it out through the preaching today in our own church for thousands of years. God has been working it out. He guaranteed it by his word, by his promise, and he is making moves towards bringing it about that his people will have eternal life with him. We will. So we can have confidence, confidence in this eternal life that is before us. And in light of that confidence, we can live this really challenging life of truth and godliness. God made a promise before the ages began. You know, that's interesting to think about. He made his promise before the ages began. Well, who did he promise? Well, God, within 
the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the Trinity, the Godhead promised each other. They promised each other that they would create and sustain and save a people for themselves, a people for their own possession, a glorious royal priesthood of all who would trust in Jesus. They made that promise to each other and then they began to work out that plan manifesting it in Jesus, manifesting it as the Spirit empowers the preaching of the world. Think about what that means. That means this, that God loves so much that he made this glorious promise that all who repent and believe in Jesus would be saved, would be forgiven, would be brought into relationship with him, would be set free to live a life of godliness. And he made that promise, the promise of an eternal life with him. He made that promise in eternity past to one another. And God the Father said to God the Son, I'm going to give you this people. We're calling them your bride. And then God the Son said, I'm going to give you this people. We're going to call them your children. And they made this promise to one another. They would give to one another the greatest gift that they could give you. You're the gift that God gives to God. And they made that promise to one another in eternity past that this is what they would do. And then they began to work it out, manifesting it in the coming of Christ, manifesting as the Spirit empowers preaching. That's how much God loves himself. And that's how much God loves you. That the greatest gift he could imagine giving is you made godly, made righteous, sanctified fully and completely. That's our hope. And so God made that promise and then he sent his son, Jesus. So Jesus made that promise and then he voluntarily came and he died on the cross. He laid down his life. And three days later, he rose again with victory. And he says, now I will share that victory, share that victory with any who would come to me and trust in me. Do you believe that? That's truth. And if you believe that truth, it will radically change you. It will bring you into relationship with truth into relationship with God. It will grow you in godliness until the day that our hopes are realized. Are you living? Are you living a life of truth and godliness rooted in hope? If not, let today be the day. If not, let today be the day that you decide to give your life over to the Lord. Let today be the day that you stop believing lies. Let today be the day that you step into the freedom that has been won for you in Christ, freedom over sin. Let today be the day that you come into a real and lasting relationship with truth. Let today be the day that you turn your eyes from the things of earth and you cast them upon the things that are above. You fix them on Jesus Christ himself. Let today be the day that you begin to live a life of truth and godliness that is rooted in a sure hope. Let's pray. Oh God, you are, you are so good to give us confidence in what you have done, 
in what you are doing and what you will do, that your promises are true. They stand forever. And you are winning a people for yourself. Lord, we pray that we might be found among that people, those who have turned from the things of earth and have turned to you, who have repented and believed in Jesus. And Lord, we pray, we know that there are things deep, there's lies deep in our hearts that we still believe. Even even those of us who have followed you, there are lies deep in our hearts that we still believe. And so we pray that that you would reveal them and then Lord, that you would set us free from them. Help us to see them and to turn from them and turn to you because you truly are better, better than anything else that this world could offer. So it's in light of your incredible goodness that we ask that you would help us to live lives of truth and godliness even today. In Christ's name, amen.